Okay, welcome back. Um, so, Professor is just going to continue with the uh, end of the last lecture. Professor. Thank you. Uh, double entry bookkeeping, going back to Luca Pacioli. But now, here is what Goethe, the famous German poet, philosopher, uh, playwright, statesman, etc. He wrote, a, I guess it's a novel, uh, with the title of Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship. And in that, he said the following. One of the finest inventions of the human mind is double entry bookkeeping. Now, Sandy, could you justify this, why it's important? Goethe, who was not a tradesman, he was not a mathematician, and, so, and he could see this. And this is, every word of this statement is true. So, you put in your bit, and then let's see if we well, can. My, as a, as a equity manager, it's the first port of call for any analysis of any company. You have to know how to read the balance sheet, mm -hmm. and you have to know especially how they might um, manipulate the balance sheet. Um, In other words, there was simply no such thing as balance sheet no. before. Yeah. And there couldn't be. No. Because a balance sheet, as it says, has to balance in zero. Okay. So it's utterly important. Without it, there's no, I could not do investment. In, and in the, there would be no equity markets. No. And if there's a company with, say, ten partners, and one of them wants to get out, there will be just no way to find out how to pay him off. Mm -hmm. Or somebody, a new partner, wants to join. How much he should put in to the kitty before he would be accepted as a fully-fledged partner. A very important, I mean, extremely important. You have to think about this before you realize just how important. In other words, it's like a frozen picture, and after the principle of double entry bookkeeping, it's a movie picture. That's what the difference is. Because, because there could be no trading. There would be very good companies and it would be beneficial if uh, you could, as an individual investor, move your capital out of one and into the other because you see something. But there's no way. It's a frozen picture. You have to wait until somebody dies or something like that. But with double-entry bookkeeping, it comes alive and, and is a busy, uh, busy market, equity market. And the frozen market 
without it. Now let's invite questions. Uh, not a question, but an example that I use when explaining this. Imagine if you sold an insurance policy for a $1 premium paid today that will pay out $100 if the year ends in two. Can you put down a, what, can you put down a $1 profit? And under cash basis accounting, that's exactly what you would do. But you're painting a, a grossly inaccurate picture of the business if you do that. You have to accrue the $100 loss, the $100 liability as well, and realize that you've just taken a $99 loss. <laughs> and only with double entry accounting can you see that. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, maybe not the loss, it's a probable loss. <laughs> <laughs> the world might end. Yeah, before the next two. Sure, sure. <laughs> Rudy. What year was the invention of double entry? What, what year was uh, the double entry bookkeeping invented? Do you, do you know what year it was, Professor Pacioli? Oh, uh, I, I don't want to make a, a guess. Uh, it was 1,200 something. 1,200 something. Okay, and that's, no, that's good enough for me. In 1270. Uh, you could look up, look up the, on the how do you spell his name? Luca, L L U K E, Pacioli is P A C I O L A. Somebody on the laptop could look up. Fourteen forty-five to fifteen seventeen. Oh, then I'm <laughs> sorry. So not 13th century, but 14th century. Okay. Just, just before the Renaissance started. So near the end of the Middle Ages, or it during, but near the end. Oh, uh, and let's point this out. Although this is not the subject of our course, but it will be the next course is that, you see, Italy was the commercial center of the world. And a lot of uh, geniuses, you know, innovators, and Medici's and many others. Uh, there was another terrific invention in Italy at the same time, 13th uh, century. Fourteenth century. Can you see? Can you name what this other fantastic invention was? Well, I already gave it away. Subject of next course. Oh. <laughs> Real bill, or oh, the, the better known as the, or originally known as the bill of exchange. And that originated in uh, several Italian cities about the same time. Genoa, Florence, maybe Venice. Very interesting. And, and the two together started blossoming. It was just an explosion of trade. Yes. Would you say that the um, first led to the second? Is it possible that the objective valuation actually led to real bills, or were they quite separate developments? Did um, did uh, 
Do you mean did the invention of double entry? Yeah. Yeah. Did the, do you think the yeah sort of did the background of having double entry bookkeeping and having a, a, a rigorous way of keeping your numbers lead to the development of the real bill? Do you uh -huh. think that could have been the case? I I would agree. Yes. There are actually real bills before that, it's just that it, ha it was made to the most use in Italy. The real, the real bill is the invention of the merchants mm. amongst them to make it easier. So, and they escape also um, uh, canonic law and um, traditional law, and they have their own laws regulating the Lex Mercatoria, that, that would be important to them. And I think maybe it was influenced, but the Summa Arithmica, what's the title of the book of Pacioli? Summa? Summa. Anyway, that was written by an academic, mm. and um, it was Professor De Rover uh, who taught in the States and wrote a book on the medieval um, traders of Bruges. Um, he has done some research on that. Pacioli uh, had applications in the banking sector, but the banking sector were merchants also. So obviously they came together. But you, can't, you, you cannot say that it was um, uh, Luca Pacioli who invented the real world. Sure. No, 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 I wasn't suggesting that one moment. I just wanted to know whether there was a connection uh, one day to the other or. It came from merchants. Yeah. But merchants trading amongst themselves, they traded with banks, and the Medici were merchant banks. Yeah. I have a question on the triple contract. The um, lender um, has the option, correct me if I'm wrong, has the option of um, giving up his equity uh, if he wants to, if he wants in, in view of that, a non-fixed income. Um, the, the, when does the lender make that call? At the beginning? Or is it a call that he can make at any point in time? It's just that the way it was presented in your notes seems to be an option that's there. Are you referring the first the first uh, contract? Well, the first contract uh, means they're partners, so he has equity. Yes. But then the third contract says that he has a, he has the option of letting that go and replacing that instead with income. I don't think it's an option. They agree previously when they signed the contract. How can he have both? I guess that's my question. How can the lender have both? Be a partner and also be paid income on the loan? Oh, the, the third is an insurance, isn't it? The second is an insurance. The well, second is an insurance. Okay. Well, uh, if let's say that the profit stream went through the roof, and uh, he's he's got he's entitled to a share in that. So um, he would have to he wouldn't want to give that up in exchange for an annuity. I would imagine. 
Um, it's sort of, I, to me, it's like a reverse sort of callable bond, uh, reverse sort of. You know, what I, what I was thinking was that it would make sense if this was the option of the borrower. So, so the equity holder knows he has, the lender gets equity, unless the business is doing that well, in which case it turns into fixed income. The upside belongs to the, to the borrower. It's like a reverse convertible not, bond. It's not clear if it is an option, yeah. and if it is an option, whose option is it? Really? Uh, maybe it helps to think about, we're talking about interest rate. This, this triple contract is there as a substitute for interest. So you must take those three to make it interest. Right. If you keep the, the equity, it's no longer an interest transaction. And it's not a triple right. contract. Right, right, right. That's what, so the business really does fantastically well. This has to turn into something that pays the fixed 5% and not the unlimited upside. That, that, that belongs to the borrower, not the lender. If, if it's not a triple contract, then you find equity and you take the risk. But to eliminate that risk, you say, okay, I'm going to cut out the bottom by insuring it, insuring mm -hmm. against loss, and I'm going to take off the top by turning it into an annuity. So if there's excess profit, Beyond the annuity, that goes to the, uh, the entrepreneur. Okay. <coughs> uh, so that, that's useful. Thanks, Rudy. It's just, I guess, what is confusing is the word provided that, is the expression provided that the lender gives up his share of profit. It assumes, it seems to imply that there is a decision to be made. But it has to be done in the beginning because it's a triple contract all stapled together. It's one contract in three parts. That's so what, what you're saying is that... Could you read it aloud and invite in comments? Okay. Yeah. Yes. yes. It's a law. Okay. Yes. Because it's a law. It's a law. Louis, maybe it helps to take no. this was an old instrument to avoid... <coughs> yeah, that's what this yeah. one was. It was useful. It, I, I look at this insurer or third party as somebody who's just standing and signing for caution. Oh, I have no problem with the insurance contract. It was with the annuity contract. I'm just going to read a statement out at Professor's request and invite uh, comments here. So, um, this is uh, the uh, third paragraph on double entry, second paragraph on the double entry bookkeeping. So, previously, there was only one way for the economizing individual to convert income into wealth outside of family bonds. Hoarding, for much of the Orient, that was slower in developing the institutional framework to protect contractual rights. It is still the only way. This immobilized large amounts of silver and gold and made capital accumulation an arduous and protracted process in which reward was far removed from effort, dampening incentive. Well, make your own comments and then let's see. Um, yes, this is a, uh, I would agree that um, it would seem to be a problem because there was a, um, there was an old saying that gold and silver that goes to India never comes back again. And they've said that for many, many thousands of years. And same to China. And same to China. Or even more to China. Yeah. Um, now, whether it um, immobilized, whether that philosophy 
dampened their incentive? I'm not sure, because they were quite active merchants themselves. Mm -hmm. um, more so even, I would say, than um, the... Uh, yeah, but the, you have to think in terms of the uh, uh, principle of bubble and bookkeeping. Yes. Before and after mm -hmm. it made a difference mm -hmm. because in the West the gold the cash gold and silver were very much needed to be in business mm. and so it was in the East but now after it's a big big watershed before it was very much needed <coughs> But after, it was no longer as badly needed in the West. Why? Cash, cash, gold, and silver. It, because only, only the residue had to be settled in gold and silver. Once you had this mobility in the equity markets you could easily sell one stock and buy another before you couldn't okay so you needed actually less physical silver and gold and the same thing did not happen in the orient because they did not immediately took the idea of double entry bookkeeping neither in India nor in China. I mean, sooner or later they, they did, but certainly not immediately. And therefore, the East became the sink. So there's a one-way movement of gold and silver from the West to the East and it started right at the time when the double entry bookkeeping became widely accepted in the West, but not in the East, and therefore uh, the equity markets became mobilized. That's what it means. But please, make your own comment. Now, let's go on and uh, read the following. Okay. The, the invention of double-entry bookkeeping made possible a heretofore unprecedented increase in the efficiency of gold as the catalyst of capital accumulation. Gold's physical presence was no longer necessary in every instance conversion. From now on, gold could work by proxy as its role in the conversion has become residual. Thanks to this breakthrough, partnerships could now be formed representing exchange of income of the junior partners for wealth of the senior partners. Later, with the gradual acceptance of sleeping partners in the firm, it has become possible to buy and sell shares as if they were fixed income securities. Indeed, this they were in all but name. In order to avoid censure by canonical and secular authorities under the, usual, under the usury laws, it's clear that without double-entry bookkeeping, balance sheets, income statements, and trade in shares would not be possible. 
nor could a departing partner be bought out to say nothing of entry fees to be charged to newcomers. There would be no precise and objective way of attaching value to assets and liabilities of the firm short of liquidation. Um, that's not controversial. No, no. not at all. Not but at all. but it, it points to the importance. But do you honestly think, though, Professor, that because the West only had to deal with the residual, that that was the reason that the gold went That's east? certainly one, one reason. Mm. There might have been others. Now, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted you to say about this discovery of tremendous treasure in the order of uh, dozens of billions of dollars mostly gold coins uh, originating from all parts of the world. Uh, in the state of Kerala, India, and the capital city which I... Goa. <laughs> Goa. <laughs> yeah. So please... Yes. Um, so this is... It, this was the, uh, the family... the family temple of uh, the Maharajas of Travancore. And they're not especially grand in the scale of Indian Maharajas, um, but they were the custodians of uh, a temple dedicated to, to Vishnu. And, Which uh, is an, a, a, a god. Uh, uh, Vishnu is a Hindu god, Hindu one of god. the trinity of the, uh, the Hindu gods. Uh, Trivandrum was the capital in ancient Kerala. I think Goa is the capital now, but I... But the, uh, the, the amount of gold that was found there was, was of the order 20 to 25 billion, billion dollars worth. And um, that's not grand in the scheme of Indian princes and maharajas. I think if you, if, if you estimate the wealth of um, the Nizam of Hyderabad, um, it would probably be around Six hundred billion dollars in in today's in today's money. So that gives an order of the kind of amount of gold and silver that's uh, that's in the subcontinent. Now, why I bring this up is because I think it's very interesting where this particular and other maharajas may have had other, but this particular maharaja derived his income from the uh, uh, spice trade, say pepper, okay? They were the providers of pepper to the West where, the, where there was tremendous uh, demand for spices, in particular other things too, silk and... But now let's just... Uh, concentrate on spices. The fact is that all this treasure was the accumulated uh, payments for the spice which was consumed in the West and the, this particular Indian Maharaja was wise enough not to dissipate the uh, profit from that trade, the spice trade, 
And uh, actually, the temple was built in 800 BC, but no, Eight, AD. AD. Yeah. And then it was very much enlarged in the 17th century. And they added these strong rooms, of which several of them have been opened earlier, though what one, uh, they couldn't open it because it was especially reinforced with the steel structure. I don't, I don't know the details. But anyhow, I found it very, very interesting that uh, this one-way flow of gold and silver from the West, you know, this was really made possible by two things, the uh, bill of exchange and double entry bookkeeping, you see? And then it gave all kinds of complications with the Chinese, and we will talk about it another time. But this is, I, I found this discovery, which was just this year, right? Very, very uh, interesting and revealing that how gold and silver became less and less important because only the residual uh, trade had to be settled in cash. They could settle it in many other ways, like bills of exchange and, and with the, uh, with the uh, double entry bookkeeping, all these equities which were frozen and, and very, very illiquid before. Now with double entry bookkeeping, there was a tremendous increase in liquidity of equity values, that is to say, shares in enterprises were terribly, terribly hard to switch out of one into the other. They couldn't, there's no market for them. With double entry, there immediately was a market for equities and, and correspondingly less need for cash, gold and silver. So then this surplus gold and silver started trickling to the east, India and China. And, and that's one proof to my mind. This, the treasure in Kerala, uh, which I, I, I am told is one of the uh, more intellectual states in India. There's mm. More scholars, more universities. Well, that was where mathematical analysis was founded. So oh, really? Infinite series. Ah. And uh, mm -hmm. analysis as we know it was, was mm. invented there. So, yes, that's it's an important thing. Uh, when did they discover mathematics? That was developed uh, 13th century oh, by, really? by Motherba. Oh. So, uh, I'll tell you more about that later, okay. but yeah. It's very interesting. Now, please ask. Louis, Louis had a question. Well, it was just this um, one-way traffic of goods, really, um, you know, 
the West was interested in spices, but the East wasn't interested in anything. Because <laughs> right? if the East were interested in anything from the West, there would not have been this uh, cumulative hoarding of gold. What we have now is a similar sort of phenomenon where the yeah. U.S. buys uh, cheap, right. or the world buys cheap goods from China, and <laughs> China hoards paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, because they're not interested uh, to, to uh, that's but right. You have, my question is, if back then uh, India or China had somehow been interested in roast beef or whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> would, what do you think would have happened? That they had been interested in what? If they were interested in European goods. And yeah. Louis said roast well, it's, I think really it's a question of cost. The, the West could not produce those goods at a competitive price which the Chinese or Indians could produce. I mean, in those days the, uh, there were no such inventions which would give an advantage to the West, which you know, that, that's the way I look at it, because the fact is that the Chinese just were not interested in Western goods. But I, I can't believe that it's because they were not interested per se. They could produce those at a, at a, a, cheaper, a cheaper cost. That's the way I look at it. Still the case. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I just want to, I think you have to be careful comparing the transfer of silver and gold back then to the transfer of silver and gold today. Because back then it was due to the efficiency of the Western financial system, and today it's due to the corruption of the Western financial system. True. They're, they're giving up stuff that they really need. Back then they gave it up because they didn't really need as much of it. And I think that's, uh, that's a big difference. I think also in ancient uh, in ancient Rome they used to complain about